Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service, bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Search for Lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Vivian Nunes. Welcome to the programme. The chairman of the Chinese property developer Evergrande has been detained, as we heard in the news, hours after trading in the company's stock was suspended. We'll have the latest. One of the world's most popular video games is set to undertake a costly rebrand. So is FIFA still FIFA if it's called something else? And... In Paris received some good news, subsidised vet insurance for animals in the French capital. That story coming up. But we start today in China, where the property developer Evergrande has confirmed its chairman, Hui Kaiyan, is subject to so-called mandatory measures due to suspicion of illegal activity. The news comes after shares in Evergrande were again suspended from Hong Kong trading on Thursday, adding to fears that the company could be moving a step closer to eventual liquidation. Evergrande is the most indebted property developer in the world, with liabilities of more than $300 billion. Sandra Chow is from Credit Sites in Singapore, a firm which does investment research into companies that issue bonds. I spoke to her before Evergrande issued the statement about its chairman and asked her why trading the stock was suspended. There wasn't an official reason given for the share trading suspension, but Evergrande has been hit by a few negative headlines over the past few days. So first of all, they cancelled the creditor meetings for their offshore debt restructuring that were due to be held earlier this week. The company said this was because their sales had been worse than expected. They also announced that there was a regulatory investigation going on into Hungda Real Estate, which is their main operating subsidiary or the holding company for their property developments in China. There are also reports that Evergrande's chairman has been placed under police surveillance. That follows reports earlier this week that other former executives and current executives have also been detained. So the Chinese government is obviously, I guess, starting to get involved in this story in a big way. Do we have any details about why these members of the company may have been detained? Unfortunately not. Um, There's been no official comment from the company or unsurprisingly from the regulators on the back of these news reports, although they have been reported by a few different sources. Presumably it's linked in some way to the investigation of Hungar Real Estate, the onshore property holding company. But apart from that, we don't really know exactly what these detentions or the surveillance relate to.
I mean, could it be trying to send a message to consumers, ordinary citizens in China, that the government is paying attention very closely to what happens at Evergrande? It's very hard to tell with China, isn't it, what the motives might be. It is very hard to tell. I agree. It's a bit of a, a black box, and it does raise more questions than answers for people. Certainly, these are very high-profile figures, and it does show very much that the regulator is putting the company under scrutiny and analysing it to see if there were any wrongdoings at the company. But beyond that, it's very hard to say what the intention of the authorities is by doing this. And when trading is suspended, what's the aim? There, I think it's probably because there is some information which has not been disclosed, which may be material to the investors. But there was no reason given for the share trading suspension. So all we can assume is that it's related to the investigations which are ongoing. And what about the wider property sector in China? Then are we seeing other companies affected by what's happening at Evergrande and this loss of confidence among Chinese citizens in buying property? Definitely, this is not good news, and Evergrande is not the only developer who's been struggling. So the news does reflect badly on the sector as a whole. Although I think a lot of people may view Evergrande as an isolated case to some extent, and that this investigation relates purely to Evergrande, without any direct repercussions for the overall sector. But having said that, there are a lot of other developers which have been struggling for some time. Country Garden is another very big developer, which is struggling to make its interest payments and is currently in the grace period. For some of the missed coupons on its bonds, so there will be more difficult headlines, I guess, coming out over the next few weeks or so. And home buyer sentiment is very split. What we've seen is that the sales have been doing quite well for the very strong state-linked developers, but they've been pretty bad for the weaker privately-owned developers. Is there a sense that the Chinese government won't allow Evergrande to be liquidated, perhaps because it is too big to fail? I don't think there's any certainty anymore. For Evergrande, default already showed that the government didn't see the company as too big to fail. So whether or not it liquidates or restructures, I don't think anybody is totally safe, and it's hard to say with any degree of confidence whether they'll be safe or not. Sandra Chow in Singapore. Now it's one of the world's best-selling video games, but from tomorrow you won't find it on the shelves anymore. At least not in the same packaging. After 30 years, the football simulation game FIFA is changing its name to EA Sports FC. The California-based games maker Electronic Arts is stepping out of the football governing body's shadow, following a reported disagreement over the cost of the license to use the FIFA name. Peter Moore is the former president of EA Sports and the former CEO of Liverpool Football Club. I mean, it's fundamentally a business decision. I think that for the 30 years of calling it FIFA, EA never owned that intellectual property and was beholden to the Federation of International Football Associations. And during my time there, we enjoyed a meteoric rise to where the game is now, which is one of the best games in the world and certainly one of the biggest revenue games in the world. But there was always the question of, as you do in any business, what are we getting for versus what are we paying? And I think ultimately. EA looked at what they were getting for for the licensing and the royalties paid to FIFA, and decided now was the time to strike out on their own, to build their own intellectual property, and to rebrand it EA Sports FC, and maybe just save a few dollars on the license costs that they were sending back to Zurich, Switzerland. 
Well, the game has been the best-selling franchise in the UK since the 1990s. So how does a company go about such a major rebrand without losing customers? Well, Nick Bailey is a brand expert. He's the CEO of Future Factor, a consultancy that works with brands. Nick, thanks for joining the program. What do you make of this rebranding? Well, hi. I mean, I think, first of all, it's not a, what I describe as a kind of typical rebrand in that, you know, it's the end of a, a partnership. And for a partnership to prosper, you know, both sides have got to feel like they're getting something meaningful out of it. And, you know, who, who knows what kind of went on in the background of those negotiations. But obviously, EA took the view that time was right to kind of go on their own. And, you know, that dynamic between them and, and FIFA has changed significantly over, over the years. You know, it used to be that there was competition out there. It's such a huge game now and it's got such a a kind of huge role to play in gaming culture. You know, arguably for the gamer, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Okay, who do you think is the winner here then, FIFA or EA? Well, you know, I was watching, you know, the Netflix series Top Boy over the last couple of weeks and you know the 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 characters in the in the show were sort of talking about playing FIFA you know and it's become it's one of those few brands that's become part of the vernacular part of language and now you know there are multiple generations who've played the game you know fathers and sons and grandparents who've played the game together and they talk about playing FIFA and I wonder whether you know the the word FIFA and the brand FIFA has more resonance in culture in association in association with that game than it does actually uh, uh, as the governing body so it'll be interesting to see whether players actually just continue calling it fever regardless of the change of the name on the packaging we have had another major rebrand this year elon musk changing the name of twitter to x once he bought it do you think that's been successful i mean should that worry ea if it hasn't been very successful well, they're two very different kinds of brands, but I think the thing that kind of aligns them is the fact that they're they're brands that kind of feel owned by their communities in a way. You know, there's a huge community of players around around the, the game FIFA. Uh, equally, there's a huge community of people for whom the brand Twitter has played a really important kind of role. I think it's way too early to say whether that is going to be successful or not. And I think... Elon Musk's view of what success looks like may be very different to the community or the market's view of what success might look like for that brand in the long term. But I think, and it's interesting to see in the press, you know, whenever people are talking about X, they're still talking about it as the platform formerly known as Twitter. Uh, And it may be that there are, that there'll, there'll be a sort of stubborn constituency of users who just continues to call it Twitter. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Nick Bailey, for your insights there. Nick is a brand expert from Future Factor. This month marks an important milestone in China's huge infrastructure project known as the Belt and Road Initiative. Xi Jinping announced a massive building project along the New Silk Road to very little fanfare in Kazakhstan 10 years ago this month. Since then, railways, roads, ports and more have been built in 165 countries to date. And billions of dollars has been lent to countries in Africa, Asia, Europe and South America. Some are now struggling to afford the payments and China is reducing the amount being loaned. The BBC's Ed Butler looks at what this means for Beijing's finances and for countries with huge projects underway, but with no means of meeting the repayments. (laughs) 
The song was one of the more remarkable pieces of political messaging back at that time. Children of various nations and races dancing around a studio set. Well, catchy tunes and cute kids aside, there was no doubting the scale of the Belt and Road undertaking. Samantha Custer is a director of policy analysis at the Aid Data Research Lab in the United States, which examines infrastructure funding around the world. In the first two years of BRI, we found that the number of mega projects financed with loans worth $500 million or more, these mega projects, they tripled during the first five years of BRI implementation alone. That's unheard of in comparison to traditional development providers. Growth was rapid in the early years. Africa and parts of Asia had never seen so much investment. The trouble was, Samantha Custer says, that the nature of the lending deals was often opaque and seemingly on China's terms. There were some criticisms early on about the use of Chinese imported labour were often... Chinese nationals, not local citizens. Another has been social and environmental safeguards that have to go into uh, the planning of these projects to ensure that you mitigate the possibility of things like pollution or displacement of people. And what we started seeing with some of the early BRI projects is these things would begin happening. Your passenger will come on board train number from Nairobi to the celebrated Nairobi to Mombasa Railway. Kenya's government borrowed $5 billion to build this line, which opened in 2017. But in the years since, the service has lost money, leaving Kenya with massive debts that it struggled to repay to its Chinese lenders. Some critics blame punitive loan terms and alleged Kenyan government corruption. It is fast. It is comfy, but the disadvantages of it is I feel like we do not have control over the revenue that comes from this train. No, I don't think it was a good investment because I think that money would have used to open up other areas. They have helped us, so that one I cannot complain. The only complaint I have is their durability. Why don't the government also give subcontracts into those Chinese companies so that we also have our own people? Is all the lending doing more harm than good? I asked Henry Huayo Wang. He's the founder and president of the Centre for China and Globalisation, a think tank in Beijing. Well, this initiative has already been there for 10 years. It's not just newly proposed. I mean, that's already, you know, we see this positive impact this initiative has triggered, followed by the US, initiative followed by the EU. So those is great. And under that issue, I mean, of course, we're all entering a difficult period. That's precisely we need to boost up the infrastructure. Uh, like the Chinese saying goes, I mean, if you want to get rich, you got to build a road first. So I think this initiative by China, it's not perfect. It's still in progress. It's still in upgrading process, but actually has stimulated the whole world attention on that. But others see anything but caution at play here. One recent estimate by Boston University suggested that China has recently spent more than $200 billion simply bailing out over indebted creditor nations. And some of those loans, critics say, may never be repaid. Samantha Custer from the A-Data Research Lab. China is actually ramping up its use of emergency lending. It's no accident that most of the countries that are receiving this emergency lending, this balance of payment support, are some of the biggest recipients of BRI projects. Um, so China is shifting from maybe 
bankrolling new infrastructure projects to bailing out the old infrastructure projects. Chinese President Xi Jinping is hosting 110 global leaders in October at a Belt and Road Forum. So nominally, at least, the BRI project does rumble on. But clearly these days, the world's nations aren't, all of them anyway, singing the same tune. Ed Butler reporting there, and you can hear more of Ed's report in today's Business Daily, wherever you find your podcasts. GameStop has named the activist investor Ryan Cohen as CEO. The Canadian entrepreneur was already the largest investor in the firm. Emma Wall, Head of Investment Analysis and Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is joining us for today's show. Thanks so much for speaking to us again, Emma. GameStop is really hoping he can do for video games what he did for pet food, aren't they? Yeah, so he bought in in 2020, which was kind of the height of the meme stock um, cycle. Um, and he owns around 12% of the company. And it's been not as popular or as successful as it was at that peak in 2020, particularly over the last three months, because that's when the board fired CEO Matthew Serlong for a reason that actually hasn't yet been made clear. And then the CFO resigned. But Cohen back um, in charge or rather in charge and at the helm has seen uh, the market react positively. Most recent results showed that losses are slowing and revenue is up, Um, but the company is not yet in the black. So perhaps Ryan is the man to do it. All right, let's move to Shot Pharma. Uh, It had its IPO in Frankfurt today, I think, and shares jumped 11% after that. Now, this is a company founded back in the 1890s by Otto Schott, who invented heavy-duty glass used in medical bottles. Tell us about the company. Yeah, so they're a specialist glass manufacturer with a long heritage, as you say. And particularly recently, they've become known for their medical vials, which takes specialist um, type of glass. And obviously, there's been a huge boom in um, pharmaceutical industry in the last uh, sort of five to 10 years. And the reason why this is such interesting news is because it's only Germany's third IPO this year. And the other IPOs failed to even reach 500 million euro valuation. But this has surpassed expectations at four point. 1 billion euros. And obviously, this it has been a very successful IPO, unlike some of the IPOs earlier this year in the US, which have been really mixed. So Arm Holdings, for example, which saw its value fall significantly after IPO. So a lot of kind of um, bulls are saying that this is actually a sign of after quite a muted IPO market and quite sort of negative sentiment on the equities market. This is a sign that actually perhaps there are some green shoots. And there's two more IPOs due on the German market in the next couple of weeks. So all eyes to see if those will be as successful. Yeah, we'll be watching out. Thanks so much, Emma Wall there. And this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. The attacker had very good knowledge of banking systems. $2.1 billion in stolen funds. Money laundering operations. The cyber criminal group. These are smart guys. Seasons one and two of The Lazarus Heist from the BBC World Service are available in full right now following the twists and turns in the incredible story of the Lazarus Group hackers. The Lazarus Heist from the BBC World Service. Catch up with the whole series now, wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Well, Fairtrade is a global certification system designed to allow consumers to buy products like tea, coffee, chocolate and bananas with a clear conscience. Since its introduction in the late 1990s, the green, blue and black logo has indicated that farmers, often in low-income countries, were paid a fair wage by the big corporations who bought their produce. 
Then, a few years ago, large supermarket and coffee chains started introducing their own in-house certification models, which they said met the same ethical considerations as fair trade. Sandra Uera Murasa is the global chief executive officer of the original body, Fair Trade International. So a lot of the in-house certifications that have been developed so far across the markets are looking at the principles of fair trade and they're custom tailoring them to their needs and their requirements. You know, at the end of the day, if you see businesses setting up practices in-house within their internal controls and compliance and, and their purchasing requirements to ensure that they are focusing on good governance, social compliance, good living conditions, working conditions, gender and youth inclusion and all other other standard requirements, that's a, actually that's actually a big plus. You, you, see so, it, you see it as a positive, but there must be a reason why big corporations are moving away from just using fair trade certification. I presume they see a cost saving from moving these services in-house. I mean, can we be sure that in-house fair trade certification processes are as thorough and rigorous as, say, fair trades have been? Probably not. Um, Probably not because we have extensive experience, expertise and technical support on the ground. What is important to realise is that fair trade has been termed as an expensive certification mark. But this is because the cost of certification and the cost of compliance are put together. It is true that right now where the market is going, cost, cost leadership is taking precedence over a lot of other dynamics that need to that we need to pay attention to, such as the livelihoods of decent livelihoods of producers on the ground. So, do you so, think producers are treated fairly under in-house fair trade certification systems, like we're seeing corporations take on? I do think so, because fairness could be looked at in so many different ways. It could be price, it could be extension services, it could be continuous technical support. Uh, But I must say that a lot of the companies that also have in-house certification must still come back to work with us because we are closer to the producers. So we still maintain cooperation, collaboration and engagement with the same companies. So it must be a problem for you if, as an organisation, more and more corporations that did previously have a relationship with you are now developing these in-house fair trade certification models. Again, I would like to emphasise that there's a principle of recognition. So even as they're developing the in-house certification models, the the recognition is still focusing on the interests of fair trade. The fair trade model in itself is thorough, it's efficient, it's effective. It has looked at all the specific costs that are needed to address producer sustainability at a grassroots level. So I wouldn't say that these in-house certification marks are better, not at all. If anything, they do have a few aspects that have been dropped off, that have been traded off to focus on the interests of the businesses. The other models are complementary, but we have seen in the past that at the end of the day, we have a lot of the companies still coming back to us to help them address specific standard requirements in sustainability. Because at the end of, like I was saying, we have the technical expertise and the support and honed experience for the past 30 years that no other certification mark has. So we look at this as when we see in-house certification marks being put together, we think, okay, this is fine, but we will always maintain a collaborative space because we know at the end of the day, we are part of the solution, the global solution to addressing producer sustainability. And at the end of the day, we still have to work together. So do you find yourself taking on a monitoring role then to check that other companies that are using their own in-house fair trade certification actually are meeting the standards they advertise themselves to be meeting? No, we do not. We do not actually do that. 
that is not part of our role. Is anyone monitoring that these in-house certification models are actually fair trade aligned? I would believe there should be international certification assurance bodies that actually look at that. Is there one in coffee? No, I, I'm not aware of that. Sandra Uera Morassa, CEO of Fairtrade International, speaking with me there. Let's go to Paris now, where the City Council has announced it will subsidise health insurance. No, not for people, but for pets. The Council says poor air quality, disease from rats and a lack of exercise mean pets in the French capital are subject to more health problems than those in the rest of the country. The new pet insurance is reported to cost under €60 a year, roughly equivalent of what some pet owners are currently paying per month. So how are pet owners responding? Having a pet in Paris is so expensive and uh, nobody cares about it actually to help uh, having a pet and uh, for the mutual, uh, yes, to take care of it. This is not a dog welcome city for sure. If you want to take care of your dog, it's about 20 to 30 euro per month. And the reality is uh, here, the doctor for, for dogs are really expensive. Then if you can have an insurance that is lower in price, it will be great for sure. I believe it is a good thing because the pollution is a lot more. You know, we take our dogs on the metro. Uh, There's a lot of tourists and different diseases. And normally insurance is like 800 euros or or 1,000 euros to pay for an insurance. So if it's less expensive, uh, I'll take it. Dr Thierry Bedosa is one of the most famous vets in France and the president and founder of the NGO Agir pour la vie animale. And he joins us now from Paris. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Dr Bedosa. How will this subsidy program work then? Will pet owners receive unlimited veterinary services if they buy the insurance? Well, you know, there is always a cap, uh, a limit in the amount of uh, uh, the the insurance will cover for you know so uh, standard uh, contract um, and insurances in France have a cap of three thousand to four thousand euros which is a lot but the uh, this is a very innovative uh, gesture from the uh, the city council of Paris because the city council of Paris I think is the first in any uh, any kind of uh, uh, capital and huge city, you know, to offer uh, a contract which will cost between 10 to 60 euros only uh, per every year. And uh, I think it will cover up to uh, maybe 1,000 or 2,000 uh, euros of veterinary veterinary fees, which is a lot. Yeah, I've certainly never heard of it taking place in any other city. I mean, how did this come about? Has the increase in the cost of living lately meant that some pet owners are finding they really can't afford their pets lately in Paris? Yes, unfortunately, you know, and unfortunately, many pet owners have to relinquish their pets because they cannot afford anymore uh, the costs of pet food the cost of veterinary uh, care, um, and they cannot even go to vacations because they need to uh, have their pets uh, sheltered in any kind of boarding canal, you know, and it's, it is very, very expensive, you know. Everywhere in Europe we have inflation, of course, but in Paris, uh, as uh, you, uh, you heard, it's not a, a dog-friendly city, you know, um, Unfortunately, you know, and we have heavy pollution. So heavy pollution, you know, means uh, a high profile of uh, of um, 
diseases, you know. Uh, in, in Paris, you know, cats are the most popular pets, you know, and many cats, they are, uh, they are living uh, um, a life of indoor cats. They never can go out of the flat they live in, you know, and it causes a lot of disease for them, a lot, a lot of stress, and they have organic disease at the end, you know. They have a urinary disease, they have a, uh, hepatic disease, they have cancers, they have diabetes, you know. So and this, is, this, this com- is good news then. Thanks so much, Dr. Thierry Bedosa, speaking to us there.